You're listening to Strange by Nature, your guide to the strange, weird, unbelievable, and improbable wonders of the natural world. Hello, everyone. Thanks for being here today. I am Kirk Mona, and I am joined today by Rachel Ginza and Victoria Thompson. We are all professional naturalists who together have scoured the world for weird and wonderful wonders just to please your mammalian brain's desire for novelty. Isn't that nice? Let's do this. Welcome back to the show, everybody. Uh, we have Victoria yeah, this week. Good, good to be, to be here. here. Yay! Yay! Hey, here. Victoria. Oh, awesome. so exciting. Like a party every time I actually show up to my own podcast now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's, you know, think how excited people are to, to hear and see you. It's wonderful. Yes. Oh, so excited all the time. Uh, so I get, a, I get to start us off this week. And this week I decided mm-hmm. to go... A, well, not, not the ocean. I, it's not the ocean. We've okay. talked oh, about... So, so then Australia. Australia. Oh, no. Also, no. Uh, we've talked about salamanders on the <laughs> oh. show before. I know. I'm mixing it up. We have. Uh, just in a couple different capacities. Okay. Like, we talked about the giant salamander um, a little over 100 episodes ago. And yeah. we mentioned salamanders yeah. and... Oh, oh, right? 100... Oh, just so long ago. And we mentioned uh, amphibians and salamanders in me- when I talked about metamorphosis who knows how far back but since it's been over 100 episodes let's talk about salamanders again because uh and you better strap in because this is wild in the water in the waters of some caves in slovenia and croatia is what is also known as the human fish oh what the human fish human the human fish I bet it's name. neither a human nor a fish. You are correct, I think Victoria. that's a pretty safe assumption, Victoria. <laughs> you are correct. Picture a salamander or maybe an axolotl. An axolotl would be closer. With like a long tail, short little legs, and a pear-shaped head. And it's about 8 to 12 inches long. This is... The head okay. or the whole thing? The whole thing. <laughs> good, good clarification. That is an excellent okay, clarification. That the sounds whole thing. more reasonable. Yes. Yeah. This is an aquatic salamander. It lives entirely in the water. So it does have external smaller gills kind of behind its head, very similar again to that axolotl. And it's this pale pink Mm -hmm. color, very similar to like my cat's nose or maybe a peony or white baby's flesh. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Or just, you know, pale White pink. baby's pale flesh. Pink. That's uh, quite a <laughs> phrase. Okay. Thank you. Now, this... There's our episode title right there. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> uh, <hey>, maybe? <laughs> I don't know about that. We'll see. <laughs> so, this salamander doesn't really have eyes. They stop developing pretty early, and eventually they get covered over and over by skin layers. But they can still detect light. Again, oh, really? Well, they live in caves, you know, so it's a blind salamander. It doesn't need uh, eyes. It doesn't yeah. really okay. need okay. eyes. And I guess if you don't need eyes, they're kind of a liability because they're very sensitive and delicate parts of the body. Exactly. So why not cover them so, up? Like they're, yeah, so and they're able to detect painful, light. You know, probably. Yeah. Ooh, <laughs> so painful. 
So instead, it actually uses its other other senses to detect both sound waves and water, vibrations on the ground, and scientists have actually also found that they're able to detect electrical stimuli and electrical fields in the water, which is pretty cool. Mm -hmm. Oh, cool. Uh, Okay. They think to the extent there's a hypothesis out there that uh, the ulm, which is the other name for it, are able to weakly detect the Earth's magnetic field to orient themselves in the cave. Cool. Which is pretty wild. Very cool. Once upon a time, uh, when floodwaters washed them out of the cave, people thought that the Ulm was a baby dragon. Of course, it's not. It's a salamander. It's not Aww. a baby dragon. It was really cute. <laughs> are uh, we 100% sure? I'm going to say <laughs> probably. But if they are... Okay, it is science, so we want, you're going to leave the right. door open. We'll, we'll, leave, we'll leave a little bit of possibility that they are dragons. That would be amazing. Especially since, so instead of, but go on. (laughs) Right. Pretty sure. Well, yeah, that's fair. So instead of going metamorphosis (laughs) through metamorphosis, it does stay in that larval form uh, in the aquatic waters and lives in those waters of the caves, continuing to live and grow just a bit more and more until after 16 years, they reach sexual maturity. What? Oh, <laughs> full stop. Hold That's on. That's even longer than most humans. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I said years. 16 years. <laughs> I would like to point out salamander? in my notes, poor salamander. <laughs> that is nuts. Oh, yeah. I buried the lead on this, man. Because <laughs> you think sure that's you wild. Wow. Uh, I, by the way, uh. in my notes, I do have pause for astonishment written in <laughs> um uh, so we are properly astonished. beautiful <laughs> so i don't think that's the word so there are some efforts because they are a vulnerable species living in caves in um some alps in uh, slovenia and croatia to the point where there's actually one successful farm that is able to raise and breed these alms, these salamanders. Um, It's got to be a slow process. It is a slow process because they have found that uh, after they reach sexual maturity at 16, they then go on to live and reproduce to be at least 70 years old with the understanding and thought that the Ulm is, might actually be able to live past 100 years old. <laughs> so basically, it oh is just like gosh. a human. Yeah, pretty much. Not that That's much like a, a human fish. Human fish. <laughs> yep. Yeah, they... they <sighs> so there are 70-year-old <laughs> blind salamanders living in caves... I mean, do we know why they live so long? No. Part of it is they do live in a pretty cold environment. And a lot of animals, it seems, tend to live a lot longer in colder environments. 
Uh, they do live on like fish and insects and things like that in the cave, but there's really no thought about a reason behind why they think they live that long. Although, I mean, if you I mean, don't do they reach, have any predators, is that part of it too? Like, I mean, once they reach, once they reach, um, adulthood, adulthood. there's really like, they generally will like survive pretty well. There's not like a ton of predators. However, Another little okay. fun bit here. So the the female. Well, I get the feeling this is not <laughs> going to be fun. Well, it is a little fun, but one reason that could help with the reason why it takes they're so long lived is the female will typically breed every twelve and a half years. <gasps> so. Oh my! <laughs> wow, that's so. Um... Like the opposite of time. fecundity, just a little yeah. bit. How many, uh, how many little babies does wait. she raise at one time, or does she raise 20, them? I guess thousand. Um, up to seventy. The average is thirty-five. Okay. <laughs> so she's busy. She's busy. Yeah, yeah. she's busy. And I mean, actually, do they do they care for the young? Do you know, or is it just sort of like, have fun? You're on your own. So, so when they are, before they're born, the female will watch over and protect the eggs as best as she can before they hatch. Oh, sure. And sure. then once they emerge, they don't take care of them anymore. They just let them go and do their own thing. <laughs> um, but, it, but I will say reproduction has only been observed in captivity so far. We haven't seen it happen in the wild okay so well that is that is simply stunning yeah yes isn't that wild yeah i buried the lead on that that's the old i i had not heard of these yeah the old. yeah you were you were cool. talking about this salamander and i was thinking you know like it's it's interesting it's kind of cool lives in a cave doesn't have eyes so mm -hmm. okay not that weird it's nope. weird. <laughs> <laughs> that was the goal. I'm like, ah, well we're going to talk about this and then wait for it. <laughs> all right. Well, that's all I have for you both this week, though. So we're going to take a quick break. And when we return, it'll be Victoria. A shout out, by the way, to our newest patron, Davis. He, or at least someone from his family, is our newest supporter and member of the society of strange over at patreon.com thanks, so, uh, thanks so much yeah thanks so much for your support and thanks as well to our older you know patrons who've been around for over a year and still renewing their support we really appreciate all of you if you want to support us you can head on over to patreon.com strange by nature and we'll see you there all right we're back kirk rachel Tell me uh, what you think of when you think of the division of labor and gender roles in hunter-gatherer societies. Oh, I saw this news what are the article, men doing? What are the women doing? Oh, I saw this. Oh, I <laughs> okay. can't Pretend talk you didn't it. see the news article. Okay. Well, generally um, speaking, generally speaking, yeah, what I are you would, thinking, Rachel? unfortunately, 
gender norms or whatever, like more people tend to think that men are the hunters and women were the gatherers. Right. right yeah. That's, that, kinda, that, that would be the stereotype. Yeah. I don't know if either of you read uh, Can of, Clan of the Cave Bear. Like, there's there's definitely that going on. No, but you have you mm-hmm. have mentioned several times that you were. Well, a there's reader. a lot of oh, yeah. ecological Amongst stuff in there. There's a lot of e- ecological stuff in there. Uh, but also, this she you know it's it's the it's about a Cro-Magnon girl who gets raised by Neanderthals and um, the men are the hunters and she wants to hunt and she's basically ostracized from the clan for it. Uh, but mm-hmm. yes, right. In general, the the under the sort of general understanding is that in traditional hunter-gatherer societies, the men did hunted the big game and the women gathered plants. And, you know, to the extent that they did hunt, right. the sort of, they hunted small, easy animals like rabbits, right? And mm-hmm. this view of human okay. societies, like, it has... It's very pervasive. ...catapulted into the cultural zeitgeist. Yeah, it's, it's you know... It's kind of the traditional orthodox view in anthropology, but also, um, you know, in society at large. And this this kind of stemmed especially out of a scientific symposium that happened in 1966 that was titled Man the Hunter. Okay. Um, (laughs) And it, you know, it was gathering evidence from different fields, and they basically came to the conclusion that, yes, men hunted big game, and the meat from big game was the most crucial factor for human survival and evolution. I'm gonna I'm gonna go ahead and on a, go on a limb here and just take a guess that 99% of the attendees at this conference were male anthropologists who saw what they wanted to. I think you're probably pretty <laughs> correct. I I did uh, not probably. look up the actual gender. Ratio, <laughs> no, I'm sure you didn't, but it just stands to reason Kirk. people see the world through the lens that they you know. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, not only this, but this idea has often been held up as an explanation, especially in popular culture for all kinds of gender related things in modern society. Like sure. men are this way because blah and women are this way. And it's just like an immutable fact of evolution. And it's because men are hunters. That's kind sure. of the, the shorthand. Um, there has been quite a bit of chipping away at this narrative over the decades since 1966, but there was a s- recent study that was really interesting, which Rachel, you saw, I'm sure. I um, did. Yeah. So there's a bi. <laughs> <laughs> a biological anthropologist named Kara Wall Scheffler, and she decided to do some deep dives into the archives. And she combed through this database that has detailed information that has been collected over the past couple centuries by anthropologists uh, of foraging societies. So, hunter, you know, modern okay. hunter gatherers, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And instead of relying on the summaries of the research, as usually has been done, she actually <laughs> went through and read all of the old reports. Nice. Like the, well the notebooks and stuff. Nice. And there were about 63 societies from around the world where there was data about who was doing the hunting. And in 50 of these 63 societies, women hunted. They mm-hmm. were trained okay. to do it. They had their own weapons. And it was normal. It was considered normal in their societies. And they were not just hunting rabbits. Uh, in like a third of the societies, women were also hunting big game. Sure. So, yeah, this is like basically putting the nail in the coffin of this idea. 
And there's been previous research as well showing that the plants uh, that made up part of the diet of hunter-gatherer societies or do make up part of the diet of hunter-gatherer societies are significant contributions to the calories that are consumed. Oh, yeah. I mean, it also varies by latitude because the the higher the latitude, the more the proportion of the diet is going to be made up of meat. Like, think of the Inuit. Yeah. They're mostly eating meat. The, the animals themselves are getting bigger, too, which allows yeah. that. And also the there's not as many fruits and things like that. Yes, exactly. So it definitely varies by culture, not by, long, by climate. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, but this is really hardly the only area of scientific research where looking at the actual data has overturned some <laughs> sexist assumptions. <laughs> Okay. Oh, I love it so much. Uh, for example, for example, biologists believed for decades that male anoles defend their territories. Now, anoles are a kind of a small lizard that are found in Florida. And yeah. we so had those in it was my bl- classroom for a while. Yeah. Yeah, they uh they change color from green to gray basically. Sometimes they're called chameleons, but they're not chameleons. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, these little lizards, uh, they were believed to be territorial. So it was believed males would defend a territory and only female anoles who lived in that territory would mate with the male who kind of owned the sure, territory. Sure. Well, then recently along came a female graduate student named Ambika Kamath, and she decided to study anoles, and she just decided to spend huge number of hours tracking the movements of specific individuals over a large area. Where did they go? Mm -hmm. What did they do? Who were they interacting with? And by actually looking at the movements of these individual lizards, she showed that actually they're not territorial at all. (laughs) Okay. So how were scientists so wrong for so long? Yeah. Hmm. Uh, Well, it was based on a lab study from the 1930s, and they had some captive male anoles in the same enclosure, and the male right. anoles were showing some same-sex sexual behavior. Ah. <laughs> and okay. the scientists decided that the only reason this could possibly be happening was that the males were shut up in the same cage, because surely in nature something would pre- prevent them from doing this horrible, <laughs> unnatural act. Surely! Ha ha ha! Surely that would never happen in nature. <laughs> and the something that must be preventing them doing it is that they're territorial, so they don't encounter each other. Ah, yes, that's, that's why it doesn't happen. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah, that, so... That's interesting, because actually that makes even less sense, right? Yeah. Yes. Yep. I mean, if they were territorial they would be even less likely to be engaged in that sort of behavior not more likely like right that makes no yeah. like the mental gymnastics would be more aggression are, than uh, anything mm-hmm. else they gold, gold medal in uh you know, yeah. projection there oh, well these yeah. folks were hardly the first nor the last scientists to twist themselves into knots trying to avoid the obvious conclusion right, right. um and, you know, with the case of anoles, nobody just, the, the assumption just sort of got baked into the, into the field and nobody questioned it until, um, until, until uh, Ambika came, came along. And going even wow. further back to the granddaddy of evolution, 
Darwin. Darwin. Charles Darwin. Chucky, Chuck, Chucky D, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so Darwin, so many you know, names. Darwin was a visionary and, you know, he was right about a lot of stuff, but he was also a man of his time. And he mm-hmm. believed that yeah. men were superior to women in humans and other species. And he believed that uh, males were the main drivers of evolution. And that was why, basically, they were... Because they're the ones making the, se- the, the sexual selection? The yes. Idea? They're competing uh-huh. for mates. They're fighting other males and so on. And the women are just passively, oh, who's going to win me? Exactly. That was, that <laughs> yeah, was basically wow. uh, the gymnastics. His, uh, yeah. He, he definitely downplayed female choice. And for decades, scientists were <sighs> twisting themselves into knots, trying to ignore or explain away behaviors that did not match these ideas. So promiscuous females, female choice in mating, aggressive females, dominant females. Um, and in fact, as you, you two both know, female choice is now thought to be a significant driver of evolution, particularly for uh, oh, yeah. things like um, ornate embellishments, such as peacock feathers. And, and other beautiful antlers. things that birds have. Antlers, antlers and deer. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. The, 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 it's, the, it's, the, it's the females who are you know, looking and going, right, who's got the best display? And I'm, I'm going to make my choice, you know? Certainly. Yeah. Exactly. Birds, obviously a lot. Yeah. And, yes, yeah, so uh, there, there's numerous other examples. Basically, sexism and homophobia have often been just blinders <laughs> on our understanding of what is actually going on in nature and, and in human society. Thankfully, things are starting to change now. Uh, there, there are now research groups that are focused on overturning some of these misunderstandings. I love and that. Apparently us. because, and the, put, put your seatbelt on for this one, apparently women can do science. Yeah. What? Yeah, that's that's what I, that's that's the takeaway here. I think, unbelievable. Yeah, that's you know, it's a good example of why representation is so important in any kind of science, not just in terms of of, mm-hmm. of gender, but in terms of every type of diversity, in terms of you know cultural diversity, um, and just getting different patterns of thought because different people approach problems in different ways and with different sort of. Yes, sets of biases, but also with their, you know, the the blind spots they don't have that someone else may have. So getting that um, variety of thought involved in discussion is like the most critical thing we could possibly do for science. Yeah, that's what I have for you. I know it's a little more on the the sort of human behavior and understanding side of things than than we typically go. But I thought it was an interesting topic to talk about. My main sources this week were an article uh, from NPR about that new hunter-gatherer study, and Science News, and Wired Magazine. So, uh, we are going to take a little break now, and when we come back, Kirk will have something for us. I will indeed. Welcome back, everybody. Uh, you know, it, it's summertime, and so I've been thinking a bit about the sun. And the sun is pretty amazing. Uh, it makes life possible for most things here on Earth. But, you know, living next to a giant ball of plasma that constantly bathes your planet in high-intensity energy isn't all puppy dogs and rainbows, right? 
Uh, a good I mean, portion. Especially when you put it that like make that. Rainbows. <laughs> I mean, no, that's that why I say it's true. not all puppy dogs and rainbows. I mean, it's it's partially puppy Sometimes dogs. Sometimes it makes puppy dogs. <laughs> um, but indirectly, yeah, yeah. I mean, all life. Yeah. Um, I shouldn't say all. Uh, most life on Earth does require that the sun uh, is there. And so a good portion of the solar radiation that reaches our planet uh, is in the form of ultraviolet light. And that word radiation right. is in there, and that's kind of like scary. But in this case, the word radi- radiation just means like given off, as in the sun radiates light. Uh, ultraviolet light is just high energy light. And as I mentioned a few episodes back, uh, we humans obviously can't see ultraviolet light. But it can be very useful uh, because a specific wavelength of ultraviolet light called UVB or ultraviolet B uh, is used by your skin to make vitamin D, which is what right. I talked about before when I was actually talking about uh, scurvy and scurvy. Whatnot, which is vitamin C. But if you're confused what the connection is there, <laughs> go back and listen to the episode. So UVB makes up only... in the title. <laughs> yeah. Vitamin deficiencies. Well, now you gave it away. Yeah. So ultraviolet B, uh, it makes up only about 5% of the ultraviolet light that we receive at the surface of the Earth. And here's the bad news. Uh, Because it is higher energy than UVA, which is uh, the other type of ultraviolet light we get, um, it is is more damaging to our skin. But again, it's, it's it's not the majority of the ultraviolet out there. It's only 5%. It is actually the type of UV that's more likely to cause skin cancer, though. So it's like, yay, it makes vitamin D, B, it causes skin cancer. So, you know, maybe it's it's good that it's only (laughs) 5%, um, (laughs) which means 95% of the light uh, is UVA, uh, which, you know, also isn't that great for us to get on our skin. It's not as, as damaging as a UVB, though. So... This is kind of the strange double-sided coin of life around a star, right? We need mm-hmm. the energy from the sun to, to, to sustain life, but too much isn't a great thing either. So what I want to talk about this right. week are a few of the strange strategies that plants and animals have developed through millions of years of evolution living next to this giant cancer factory we call the sun. <laughs> I'm intrigued. Oh, so yeah. first off... Let's talk about plants. Uh, now, I'm not going to go through like every single different thing because we are still discovering more all the time. But a mm-hmm. few highlights for you. Uh, researchers have shown that plants create something called malate. Uh, this is a natural plant ester that plants can use as a sunscreen. Sunblock. Uh, recently, some researchers at... Pro- yeah. Well, I, you, I, not sunblock though. So sunscreen. Oh, great. sunscreen. And here's why. Um, researchers at Purdue University showed that if you shine light, uh, specifically like laser light, like a UVB laser at this ester is able to block that light, but it will still let through the wavelengths of light that are needed for photosynthesis. So it's specifically blocking just the UVB. Um, so plants have found a way to make their own sunscreen, which is super amazing. Plants can, can get sunburned and sun scald and whatnot. So that is uh, pretty important. I don't know if all plants have that, but they have shown that it is something that is present in plants. But wait, there's more. Uh, screening out UVB, it turns out, goes way back, uh, at least from an evolutionary perspective. Back in the 1960s, which I know is, is not that way back, but in the <laughs> 60s, uh, scientists discovered something called MAAs, 
which are mycosporine or mycosporine or mycospirine like amino acid pigments. It's a mouthful, you guys. Yeah, We're just gonna call them MMAs. Wild. Uh, it turns out they they can <laughs> they can also did I say MMAs? That's mixed martial arts. MAAs. Yeah, I was like, hold on. Uh, is what this they are. feels like fighting. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> MAAs. Yeah, I mean M- <laughs> MMA is a totally different thing. Uh, MAAs turns out can block UVB light as well. Um, and these have been found in very early primitive life forms such as cyanobacteria, microalgae, and fungi but also in things like seaweed and corals and lichens and even in freshwater uh, fish and marine animals. So quite Ooh. a diverse huh. you know, spectrum of, of life that has this. And because it's shared by so many branches of life, you can be sure this is a form of protection that evolved very early on in the yeah. history of Earth because so many different species share this common trait. So that is super cool. Uh, Speaking of, you know, like animals and whatnot, uh, as a human, I know I have to slather my body in sunscreen and it'd be pretty awesome if so uh, my body just made its own. <laughs> that would right? be so nice. Well, it does. So what? skin has melanin in it and melanin is a pigment in your skin that gets darker when exposed to sunlight. It's what creates a tan after being in the sun. Uh, that is your body it's natural way of trying to block all that sunlight that you're out in and naturally okay. humans have evolved to create a lot of melanin, uh, which uh-huh. is, uh, you know, why much of the human population has very dark skin, which is very protective weirdos like me, whose ancestors and are from me. practically up near the Arctic circle. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Carry a mutation that makes our skin lighter so we can absorb more UV light and create that vitamin D in the dead of the dark, cold winter. And that white skin mutation is thought to have come around somewhere around 25,000 years ago. So like, yay, more vitamin yay. D, boo, more skin cancer. So, yeah. you know, also, everything's like, a trade-off. I don't and tan. I go straight to like burn. Lobster. Yeah. yeah. Yep. <laughs> That's how it is. Um, <laughs> so... Melanin, I also want to point out, is not just a human thing. That is present in many animals, not just humans. Um, so it's a pretty common way to keep the UVB away. The ohm that I talked about earlier, it does that too. It'll get darker yeah. if exposed to Oh, very light. cool. Very cool. Because it's, you know, it's a human. <laughs> it's a mini human, yeah. <laughs> um, but it's interesting you say that like, if it's exposed to light. One of the things we find is that animals that have a lot of really thick fur don't make melanin because they don't really need to because they're covered with thick fur. So it'd be a waste of resources for your body to create this stuff that doesn't do anything because the sunlight's never going to get to your skin. So really, that's a whole other subject we could talk about. It's pretty fascinating. Uh, But how about a strange, uh, really uncommon way? Since that's something that a lot of animals have. You want something really weird? Yeah, Yeah, I do. Let's talk. Let's talk about hippos. Oh God! Oh. Again, hippos okay. are awesome. Um, they they well, they spend a lot of time in the water, right? And mm-hmm. so that's right. a natural sunblock right there because they're in the water. Um, mm-hmm. But they have something even stranger. If you read some of the old descriptions of hippos, you may see references to them sweating blood. Oh yeah. Oh. oh. Now what? that oh. sounds pretty gross. Uh, yeah. And if you watch hippos closely, they do have this thick, sticky red goo that can yeah. come out of the pores in their skin. 
gross. And so, yeah, yeah, it's kind of gross. Scientists have studied this stuff and found out that it isn't blood after all. Uh, it's actually a type of amino acid. And so it probably has a few uses. Turns out that it's antibacterial. Like if you got in a fight and you got some mm -hmm. cuts and wounds, which they're hippos, so they do. And they can yeah. just, you see them like get big gashes. Like, I'm just going to go and sit in this dirty water. And you're like, how? What? How does that not get infected? It may be this antibacterial property from this stuff that's coming out of their skin. Um, it also seems to repel insects. And most importantly for our story today, when some scientists uh, studied it, they found out, ta-da, it reflects UV light and acts as a sunscreen. Nice. So very cool. Fascinating. Um, and I don't, you know, I'm just realizing when I said the word sunscreen, I don't think I actually, actually said earlier, Rachel, why it's sunscreen and not sunblock. It was kind of implied. Yeah. But if it's a sunblock, it might be blocking like all the light. You mm. just want to block just the UVB. So it's like a sunscreen. You, you want to let some of that, those wavelengths through uh, in order to, you know, do a photosynthesis or, or make vitamin right. D or whatever that plant or animal needs. So sunscreen is probably the more technically, you know, correct uh, phrase there. So, you know, um, I can tell you on those hot buggy days of summer, uh, just sweating out a combo sunscreen and bug repellent sounds pretty mm -hmm. amazing. Although if it means that you look like, look like you have blood coming great. out of your pores, then. Or if it maybe means that you look so like great. a hippo. Yeah, yeah, that part's <laughs> not so great. So clearly, you know, with millions of years of evolution at work on Earth, a number of different methods have evolved for dealing with the sun. But this week, my Strange by Nature Doing It Right Award, which is a thing I just totally made up right now on the spot <laughs> yeah, goes I'm to like, hold on. the hippo the hippo yeah so uh Yay, doing, doing it right award goes to the hippo way to go hippopotamus nice. round of applause for the strange blood that's not blood sweat that's not sweat <laughs> that protects hippos great job <laughs> Yay! congrats Yay. i had a uh, number of sources for all for this information uh science alert national institute of health uh, science news and fisher science so shout out to them and uh, put your sunscreen on, you guys. The sun is real intense. Yeah. Yeah. I do all the time. Absolutely. Awesome. Well, we hope you uh, are maybe, you know, making some vitamin D while you're listening to the show. And uh, yeah, see you next time. Bye. Bye. Thanks, everyone, for listening to today's show. Be sure to subscribe. New episodes drop every Wednesday. And we love sharing this strange world with all of our listeners. If you would be so kind as to leave us a five-star review, that would be great. It lets other lovers of The Strange discover the show. You can reach out to us on social media by searching for Strange by Nature Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can send us an email as well. Our address is contact at strangebynaturepodcast.com. If you want more information about the show, you can also check out our website, which is strangebynaturepodcast.com. Until next week, get outside, stay curious, and embrace The Strange.